You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our Living for the Cruise series. Over the past 40 years, since his breakout starring role in the 1983 comedy Risky Business, one of our most enduring movie stars has been Thomas Mapother IV, otherwise known as Tom Cruise. He has excelled in a variety of genres, but most recently mainly in action, and just last year he starred in the biggest hit of his career, Top Gun Maverick. Well, as a follow-up this year, we will see his return to the beloved Mission Impossible franchise, once again playing IMF agent Ethan Hunt. Over the next several months, I will be revisiting one notable Tom Cruise movie each month, and each from a different era of his career, culminating with the July 14th U.S. release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which came out in 2011. It was directed by Brad Bird. It stars Tom Cruise, Paula Patton, Simon Pegg, Jeremy Renner, Michael Nyquist, Vladimir Mashkov, Samuel I. Edelman, Ivan Tvedov, Leia Sadu, Anil Kapoor, Tom Wilkinson, and Josh Holloway. The genre would be spy action thriller. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated ghost protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Now I've been ordered to take you to Washington where they will hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team. So what happens now? Your mission, should you choose to accept it. So, what's the play? Who are you really, Brant? We all have our secrets. Don't we, Ethan? Okay, now remember, blue is glue. And when it's red, dead. You're not gonna make it! You're not helping. How often in the history of any franchise has the fourth film seemingly blown the doors off of all of its predecessors? Well, you could say that about Mad Max Fury Road. Many have said that about Fast Five. Chronologically, remember, it takes place before Tokyo Drift. Technically, The Avengers was the sixth film for the MCU, and that seemed to qualify. Oh, and many would say that this happened with Rocky IV, though they would be wrong. But no matter, because I can distinctly remember this being a sequel coming out back in 2011, which was a year packed with big sequels, no less, that pretty much shocked everyone when they first saw it, myself included. I kind of dug the first two Mission Impossibles in theaters. I had not even bothered to see the third one for several years until after it came out on DVD. The main reason I was going to see this movie on opening weekend, on IMAX no less, was just to be able to see the much-hyped opening sequence for The Dark Knight Rises, which was coming out the following year. I was kind of intrigued to see director Brad Bird's live-action debut, but expectations were still pretty minimal. I didn't even really like the trailer for this movie, which just seemed to rely way too much on an Eminem song to drive it forward. So imagine my surprise delight to see the sheer joy and invention of that opening prison escape sequence, all set to a kick in the head. <laughs> 
It almost resembles an opening musical number for just how well choreographed and playfully it is shot and performed. And with Tom Cruise at the center of it as Fred Astaire in a wife beater, unafraid to punch dudes who are bigger than him, no less. And Simon Pegg as Benji is also bringing it as the guy in the van, all exasperated as he sees Ethan slyly maneuver his way through a prison riot only to double back just to get someone else out. What's wrong? What's happening, Benji? Oh, God, he's not going to the extraction point. Stay focused. He knows where he's going. No, I, no, I'm not. No, I won't. I won't. I will not open that door. Please go to the extraction point, Ethan. I know. I know what this means, but I, I can't. I, I'm not authorized. Go to the extraction point, Ethan. Go to the extraction point. Oh, we're gonna. You're just gonna wait. We're gonna wait. We're gonna wait. Okay, I can wait. And then the fuse is lit, and we're off. And the film never slows down from there. You have that early Kremlin sequence. Peg is doing this bantering sidekick bit. Cruz looks kind of silly with the fake mustache. And I still laugh out loud every time I see that stretched image of Peg's face just suddenly flash on the projection screen that they're using to cover themselves in that hallway. And yet, it is still a tense sequence, masterfully executed, with a tragic ending, which occurs because Cobalt, the bad guy, got the drop on them. This is another impossible mission, mind you, and the director is not afraid to let things go wrong with them suffering the consequences, and with no deus ex machina to save the day. Ethan and his team are continuously falling behind on this mission, and that's part of the fun. This is very exciting. Being out in the field. With you, you know. It's a bit of a dream for me. Love your disguise, by the way. You look just like him. It's a shame we're not wearing masks. You know, like full masks. Everybody gets to wear a mask but Benji. And we can't forget Jeremy Renner. He's pretty great not only handling the action well, but also doing some nice, subtle comedy throughout. Watching him psych himself up into jumping down into that wind tunnel during the climax in Mumbai, it's definitely a highlight. Saturn, take the leap. Jumping. Jumping now. Jump now? Yes. Commit. Jump. 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 And I catch you. Now. So, uh, you're sure about this suit, right, Benji? Pretty sure. <laughs> now you're pretty sure? <laughs> Jump. And the overall climax in Mumbai, of course, ends in a pretty inspired way with Cruz and Michael Nyquist playing Cobalt, pretty much playing a large-scale version of Hot Potato within that giant vertical parking garage. It gets pretty brutal and tense. I'm taking that briefcase. Along those lines, the weakest part of this movie is likely the villain, which is not to say that Nyquist is bad. He's just not given much to do. We don't even see any kind of verbal interaction between him and Hunt, which is just kind of strange for a spy genre piece like this. From what I understand, there were some critical scenes fleshing out Cobalt, which were left on the cutting room floor, and that feels very apparent. I can also kind of understand, since the rest of this film is, of course, almost an embarrassment of riches. No bad scenes, no weak performances, sharp dialogue, and just a beautifully orchestrated forward momentum, which takes you right through to the end with our team now taking stock of things, having beers in the Seattle Harbor. 
It's very much a self-consciously TV action drama pilot kind of ending. But in that context, it just works. Considering the TV roots of this franchise. How's the leg? Still working. You? Healing. I'm fine, by the way. I mean, I'm not actually sleeping, per se. You know, cold sweats, middle of the night. All these people are just happy and smiling and they are completely oblivious to the fact that they were almost vaporized. And if it hadn't been for... Dumb luck. What is it? I mean, look, we were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did. But make no mistake, this is a movie in the purest sense. It was filmed for IMAX, but it still retains its joys watching it in any format. And that brings me to the categories. The first category, because this is the Living for the Cruise series, is the cruisiest moment. Tom Cruise has become such an otherworldly star to the point where many have often speculated as to whether he's in fact a real living, breathing human being. And this would be the moment in this film which most brings this speculation to light. Now overall, with a couple of minor exceptions, Cruz gives a relatively natural, subdued performance here. This is probably the first of the Mission Impossible series where his Ethan Hunt is mostly a man of action, and that serves this film very well. However, towards the end of that first act extended set piece at the Kremlin, he has one particular cruisy moment, which always makes me laugh a bit. You see, he's been playing this whole set piece heavily disguised as a Russian military officer, including that aforementioned mustache. At this point in the sequence, Ethan has just found out that the computer files that they were hoping to secure have already been stolen by cobalt so the next move is to get out of there as soon as possible we see ethan run out through various tunnels and once he gets outside he does this impressively fluid costume change while walking briskly it occurs so quickly i'm not quite sure how he's able to change his clothes while walking and what's funny is that the getup that we see him in is just such an obvious ploy to look like an american tourist you have to wonder why he even bothered He's wearing a black leather jacket over a bright white Bruce Springsteen t-shirt with an American flag on it and blue jeans. No, not inconspicuous at all. Even funnier, Cruz does not look any more comfortable wearing the garb of this prototypical all-American tourist than he did as a Russian military officer. In essence, there's really no point towards Tom Cruise trying to disguise himself as a normal person because he's, in fact, Tom Cruise. The next category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Now, it is tempting to choose classic needle drop stalwart, a kick in the head, over that cold open sequence. But yeah, this is a Mission Impossible movie after all. And at the end of the day, I'm still just a sucker for that original catchy theme originally created by the legendary Lalo Schifrin. And it's recreated elegantly for the opening credit sequence by composer Michael Giacchino, who has done his share of work for big-time scores for big-time franchises, including recently for previous episode, The Batman. Now, Giacchino's not really doing anything new here with it, but it sounds effective, and what's better is that this is the rare occasion when the theme is kicked off with the actual image of an actual fuse being lit, which was the conceit of the original show. Who's your pal? I'll tell you on the way. Light the fuse.
And what follows is a nice sort of pre-cap montage of every major action sequence to follow in the movie, which is all intercut with the flame burning down that fuse. And every sequence is shot in a careful way so as not to spoil anything major. In essence, this is just a cleverly constructed trailer for the movie within the opening credits, with just the right music. The next category is Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, one of the more notable members of the IMF team in this sequel is Jane, played by Paula Patton. Props to her for making the most of a relatively underwritten role with some nice action and emotional beats. Just past halfway through, we have that quick, mean fight between her and future Bond girl Leia Sadu, and it's a nice little showstopper. And the way it ends, I love that Bird went there. Watch her. Why, why, why me? Because if I do, I'll kill her. Go for Benji. I've got Lee by the elevators. He's been shot. What? And here's the thing. I'm still at a loss as to why Patton has not returned to the franchise since then. I mean, she is kind of the heart of this movie. And I would have loved to have seen her continuing to traverse the globe with the IMF gang. I mean, each of these sequels just keeps getting bigger and bigger. They can make some room for her. Where's Ethan? You gotta be kidding me. It's not too late. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the senior moment that best describes this movie. Okay, this is an easy one. Obviously, the high watermark of the film, and likely the franchise, still remains that extended Dubai sequence. And I'm including from the time Ethan's face starts to drop when Benji tells him he has to go outside along the side of the Burj Khalifa, all the way through when he watches Cobalt hitch a ride escaping him yet again in the middle of a sandstorm. It is just 25 minutes of pure gold. And as impressive as the stunt work is alongside that skyscraper, what really sells that sequence the most is Cruz's silent acting. <laughs> He's both scared and annoyed that he has to do this. I'm telling you, we can get to it from outside. We? I'm, I'm on the computer. I, I'm just uh, a helper. What floor is it on? Oh, 130. 130. Bed ducks. Pressure sensitive. Not enough time. Elevator shaft. Infrared sensors. Not enough time. How am I supposed to do this? The exasperation that we see on his face whenever those gloves start to malfunction is just priceless. As is the fun back and forth between him and Jeremy Renner, resulting in what might be the funniest no shit uttered in recent movie history. And now the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. 
Before directing this sequel, Brad Bird had already built up an impressive career in animation, including some of the best animated movies of the modern era, including The Incredibles, The Iron Giant, and probably my personal favorite, Ratatouille. With this being Bird's first live-action feature, he was certainly taking some pages out of the playbook out of the director of the previous Mission Impossible sequel. That'd be J.J. Abrams, who also did stay on to produce this movie. J.J. Abrams, as a director, just loves moving his stories forward via incident. He was very guilty of this with The Force Awakens and also Star Trek Into Darkness. If the major characters are just sitting down to talk at any given point, you could bet that momentarily something is going to explode or someone's going to get shot to break up the scene. And while there's a good amount of that here, Brad Bird just does it much more artfully. He'll allow something just silly to break up a scene, like a 3D face mask printer which just suddenly malfunctions or for that message self-destructing to occur 30 seconds late. I mean, this movie just moves, but it's much more organic. And while he maintains a generally playful tone, it never lessens the stakes of just some truly impressive action and suspense set pieces throughout. Now, it's so tempting to anoint Cruz for this category, and it's a close call as this was very much a turning point for his career, as it kicked off this current stage of death-defying stunt work becoming so important to Cruz's brand as a movie star. The Burj Khalifa sequence was a game changer, no doubt. And it was all over the marketing for this movie, too. And yet, in totality, this was also the first film in the Mission Impossible franchise to successfully pull off that team vibe for its entire runtime, as the previous films really focused much more on the character of Ethan Hunt, even from a personal standpoint. If you go back to the original core concept of that original TV show, it was almost first and foremost about the mission and the IMF team. Not Ethan Hunt, nor Jim Phelps, who is actually the default lead of the show, played by Peter Graves. For being the first director to successfully pull this off of the franchise, and for bringing such flair and confidence to every action or suspense set piece, Brad Bird has to be the MVP. These shots um, uh, where you, that involve special effects, you see them as they're being uh, uh, developed. And you, know, you have to have a critical eye the same way you do when you're shooting a scene in person. You still have to go, no, it needs to look a little more like this. So you're kind of prompting the movie towards this vision that you hopefully have um, you know, the whole way through. And uh, effects is just a part of it. But in this movie, um, one of the attractions of it was how much of it was not special effects, where we were doing it old school style, you know, with uh, great stunts. My rating for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol would be four and three quarters stars out of five. And of the franchise overall, I'm actually torn between considering this or Rogue Nation as the top entry. It's close. They're both up there. And if you're looking to watch Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, it is currently streaming on Paramount+. And that ends another self-destructing review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.